We're going through the book of Daniel on Wednesday nights, and we are going to begin a new chapter tonight. Yep, finally, we're in chapter 3. Let's remember what's taken place in chapter 2. If you missed any of the sermons from chapter 2, I'd ask you to go back and listen, because there's a lot of fine detail that we don't have time to recap. Very long story short, though, God gave Nebuchadnezzar a dream of a great image that had a head of gold, breast and arms of silver, belly and thighs of brass, legs of iron, and feet that were part iron and part clay. God revealed to Daniel the dream and the interpretation of the dream. Daniel goes in to tell the king, he says, you're the head of gold. So we know the starting point is the Babylonian Empire, and that's what the gold represented. We know by looking back at history, which we have the advantage of doing, that the silver represented the Persian Empire or the Medo-Persian Empire. The brass represents the Greek Empire. The iron represents the Roman Empire. But that's all good and great, but that's not the most important part of the dream. The most important thing that we ought to get out of it is the fact that there was a stone that was cut out without hands. And this stone, it smites this image upon the feet and it breaks the image, it grinds it to powder, it, it, it causes it to blow away as chaff. And this stone becomes a great mountain and it fills the earth. And this is the point of the dream, really. And that's what we're meant to see, is the Lord Jesus Christ. It pictures Christ and His perpetual kingdom that we are born again into. After Daniel receives the dream and interprets it, interprets it, we considered how Nebuchadnezzar then had misplaced worship last week. Even after Daniel praises God, he lets Nebuchadnezzar know, this isn't from any wisdom that I have. This is because there's a God in heaven even after interpreting this dream about this stone that is going to be greater than Nebuchadnezzar's empire, yet Nebuchadnezzar falls down and he worships Daniel. And remember that this is speaking of idolatrous worship. And even though Nebuchadnezzar states God is a God of gods, He's a Lord of kings, He's a revealer of secrets, the truth of those words that are coming out of his mouth are not reaching his heart. He knows, and I made the, the observation, he's kind of like a Baptist raised in a Baptist church. He knows what to say, but it's not yet penetrated his heart. And, and I think God's working on his heart. Matthew Henry wrote this, Strong convictions often come short of sound conversion. What a statement. Well, the king, he's missing it. He praises the God of Daniel. He praises Daniel for being the revealer of secrets before all that's over with. He gives Daniel great gifts. He gives Daniel a great position. He becomes ruler over all the province of Babylon. He's the chief governor over all the wise men of Babylon. And he was sitting in the gate. Remember, this is man's idea of making somebody great. Let's, let's make them wealthy and let's give them power. 
But that's not what makes us great in the eyes of God. Daniel used his favor. He had all this favor with the king. And he says, hey, I got three buds over here that would be great helpers in the, the province. And so he's able to have uh, Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael elevated to positions uh, to help assist in the affairs of Babylon. So that's where we left off. And as we come to chapter 3, we're going to read verses 1 through 13. We won't get that far, of course. (laughs) But we're going to read this here. Look at what it says. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold, whose height was three score cubits and the breadth thereof six cubits. He set it up in the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent to gather together the princes, the governors, and the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the princes, the governors, the captains, the judges, the treasurers, the counselors, the sheriffs, and all the rulers of the provinces were gathered together unto the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up, and they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then, and Herod cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that at what time ye hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king hath set up. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth, shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, at that time... When all the people heard the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and all kinds of music, all the people, the nations, and the languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Wherefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came near and accused the Jews. They spake and said to the king Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. Thou, O king, hast made a decree that every man that shall hear the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and dulcimer, and all kinds of music, shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth, that he should be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not regarded thee. They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. Amen. When we come to chapter 3, we, we don't know how much time has elapsed from the end of chapter 2. It's likely that this isn't very soon after chapter 2. Most believe, it's generally thought, many years have passed. Very likely we're talking in the neighborhood of 16, 17 years or more have elapsed between chapter 2 and chapter 3. However, there's no way to know for sure. We've seen in verse 1 that Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold. Now, where did, the, where did the king get this idea? We don't know what the image was, but I can't help but think we're meant to see a connection between the interpretation of the dream in chapter 2 and these events that are unfolding here in chapter 3, where Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold. Now he's building and he's erecting an image of gold. If many years have passed between these chapters, then it's likely this is after Nebuchadnezzar had a very successful military campaign down the Levant. This was when he finally destroyed Jerusalem. He would have destroyed the temple at this time. 
He would have taken all the rest of the Judean captives back to Babylon. And you can read Lamentations for that. And this time period would have also included the capture of the great Phoenician city of Tyre. It was a coastal city. It was sought after. And this was for, I'm telling you this because this was foretold of by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 23 and also by the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 26. And this time frame, if it is correct, it, it would have included Nebuchadnezzar's push down into Egypt. He didn't conquer Egypt, but he put a herd on them. And his intent wasn't necessarily to conquer them. It was just to quell their influence into his area. And you may recall when I introduced Daniel, I referenced Jeremiah 27, 12, where Jeremiah had told the king of Judah, Zedekiah, he said, don't resist the king of Babylon. Isn't that interesting? Don't resist what's coming. Bring yourself under the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar. Serve him and you'll live. It's almost like you just need to go ahead and take your medicine. You're getting punished. Just take it. Well, later in Jeremiah 42, Jeremiah said, Be not afraid of the king of Babylon, of whom ye are afraid. And I'm just going to summarize the last 12 verses of Jeremiah 42. Jeremiah, he encourages them to obey God, submit to Nebuchadnezzar, But he went on to say, if you don't, and you decide that you want to go down to Egypt where you think you'll be safe, then know that the sword that you fear here in Judah, it's going to find you down there in Egypt because you cannot escape God's judgment. Well, in Jeremiah 43, they accused Jeremiah of being a liar. And they decided to disobey God and they went down to Egypt. And then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 43.10. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will send and take Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. And then in verse 11, And when he cometh, he shall smite the land of Egypt and deliver such as are for death to death and such as are for captivity to captivity, and such as are for the sword to the sword. Now, why take the time to tell you all of this? Well, one reason is, if this is the supposed timing of the beginning of chapter 3, I I think it is important and beneficial to us to understand what has happened to Judea during this time, and that Scripture is being fulfilled all the while. Because as I've said throughout this study in Daniel, it's important that we we see throughout all this, God is in control. He is sovereign, and He's got it all planned out. But there may also be a connection to Nebuchadnezzar's successful military campaign down in Egypt, all the way down there, and this image that he has erected in the plains of Dura in Daniel chapter 3. At the end of Jeremiah 43, we read that Nebuchadnezzar would break also the images of Beth Shemesh that is in the land of Egypt and the houses of the gods of the Egyptians shall he burn with fire. And so one intriguing thought to consider is that when Nebuchadnezzar campaigned against Egypt, he would have went down there and saw all of these great images that we see in Egypt. And of course, a lot of those he destroyed according to the Bible. But we know the ones that we see today in our mind 
And he would have seen these great images and how Egypt had erected these, these massive images to their gods. And some believe what this did was it inspired Nebuchadnezzar coming back to Babylon to build something great in Babylon, something for idolatrous worship. In addition, now that he has successfully established his kingdom as the dominant power in the world, he now sees himself not just as a head of gold, but now he sees his entire kingdom as being indestructible. And so in essence, what he's doing is he's going, he's contradicting the interpretation that God gave to Daniel. Because God had told Daniel, tell the king this, you're going to be destroyed. And yet now he's building this golden image. It, it almost seems like we are meant to see this connection. And I'm not saying that's for sure what's happening here. But it sure seems like there's a connection here with all of this. And, and he sees himself as this great world power. His kingdom will not be destroyed. But ultimately, we are not told what his motives are. We also are never told what the image was. What is the image of? Is it of one of their gods? Is it of Nebuchadnezzar himself? Whatever it was, it was of, we know this, it was an enormous image. This thing is absolutely huge. And of course, a cubit varied uh, throughout different empires and cultures and things. But generally speaking, if we go with the more common, more smaller size of a cubit of 18 inches, then this thing being 60 cubits high, 6 cubits wide, would mean it measured 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. That's huge. This thing's 90 feet. I was trying to think, is there something in Rapid that's about that size? And I don't know, maybe the Alex Johnson Hotel. I think it's nine stories or something like that, so maybe it's a, a good reference point. And I, I don't know, but this thing is absolutely huge. And it's placed in this place called Dura which means circular. And so the thought is, there was this plane that was kind of circular in nature, and out there in the middle of this plane would have been this gigantic golden image that could be seen from miles around. And so it's a place where everybody can see this thing. Now, what we do know, and, and here's where we need to start zeroing in, what we do know is that this image has been erected for the purpose of religious worship. You catching that? When you hear the sound, you bow down and you worship. And so this thing is being put there for religious purposes. And so Nebuchadnezzar becomes guilty of Romans chapter 1, verses 21 and 25 which say, because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God. Did He not give verbal assent to who God was? He knew here, but He didn't know here. And when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. And here's verse 25. Who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshipped and served the creature more than the Creator. Between verses 1 and 18 here in Daniel chapter 3, and I'm sure you picked up on it when I was reading the text, if we would have kept reading to verse 18, we would have heard in some form or fashion 10 times in 18 verses that Nebuchadnezzar is the one who set up this image. You see how many times that was mentioned when I was reading that? It's two times alone there in verse 3. 
We, remember, the main things are the plain things. And, and we are meant to understand that this image has been set up by Nebuchadnezzar. It, it's in verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 5, verse 7, verse 12, verse 14, verse 15, verse 18. It's abundantly clear that God wants us to know this. Why all of this repetition? Well, Daniel, he's not writing an essay where he's been tasked by God to give 500 words and he's just trying to fill space. Right? This isn't a, this isn't a middle school term paper. <laughs> Larry Brock is having PTSD back there. Daniel is under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. And so this is very purposeful. One thing that jumps out at me is this idolatrous worship. And so we're told this repeatedly to emphasize how this image and this form of religious worship would not exist apart from a man named Nebuchadnezzar. The worship of this image and this repetition really shows how absurd all of this is. How can something made by human hands ever be a God? It makes no sense. How unreasonable is it that people will form something with their hands, and if I formed one, it would, it would look bad, amen? <laughs> but people who are gifted... They form something with their hands and then declare this is a deity. Remember, after the children of Israel witnessed all that God did for them in, in bringing them out of Egypt with an outstretched arm and parting the Red Sea, all the things that God did, the ten plagues and, and all these things, they, they come out of Egypt. How ridiculous is it that they would make a golden calf and declare, these be thy gods? which delivered thee out of the land of Egypt. Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8, Their idols are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they speak not. Eyes have they, but they see not. They have ears, but they hear not. Noses have they, but they smell not. They have hands, but they handle not. Feet have they, but they walk not. Neither speak they through their throat. They that make them are like unto them. So is everyone that trusteth in them. In Isaiah 44, God talks about how man, he'll, he'll take wood and he'll use wood to have heat. He'll make fire. He'll take the same wood to use it to cook with. And then he'll take the wood that's left over and he'll carve it into an image and fall down and worship it. And, and the inference to me is clear. How can something that we control for heat, something that we control to cook with, all of a sudden become a God that we worship? It's irrational. It's really unfathomable that this, this is what happens. And yet, listen, there are billions of people on the earth today that are still doing the exact same thing. How sad. How sad. They fashion a statue and then they worship it. They build shrines and they bow down to it. They offer sacrifices and they burn incense. 
And it's hard to believe, isn't it? It's hard to believe that they can't step back from that and realize how illogical it is. How it can't really make any sense that this is a God to be worshipped. They've become vain. Their foolish heart has become darkened. Psalm 97.7 says, Confounded be all they that serve graven images, that boast themselves of idols. They become confounded. And this is where Nebuchadnezzar is at in his point, at this point in his life. He was not humbled by the interpretation of the dream. But instead, he became puffed up with pride. And he perceives his own greatness. And so he sets up his own image. It had to be fashioned by man's hands. And now it's actually going to be worshipped. And isn't it interesting that this universal worship is being declared in a plain in Babylon? Where have we seen something like this before? In Genesis chapter 11. And we're almost there in our Sunday morning series. Remember, over in Genesis 11, there's a plane called Shinar, where man attempted a universal government. They decided to build a city and a tower to reach unto heaven. We call it the Tower of Babel or the Tower of Babel, depending on your pronunciation. It was located where? In Babylon. Remember from Daniel chapter 1 when Nebuchadnezzar took part of the vessels of the house of God when he first shows up in Jerusalem, he took those vessels to the house of his God in Shinar. There's a connection here. In Babylon, there has been an attempt at a one world government. There's been an attempt at a one world religion. And before the end, Babylon will show up again in the Revelation as one who made all nations to drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. It appears that there'll be some attempt at unifying again in the future. She will have the name Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. But hey, let not your heart be troubled. Amen? God, the Bible says, will destroy that in one hour. Now, there's many parallels. There's a lot of prophecy we could get into right here about the beast of Revelation and the worship of His image. I'm going to forego all that in an effort to stay within our lane in Daniel. And here in chapter 3, because I do want to cover more than one verse tonight. In, verses, in, in verse 2, all the leaders throughout all the provinces of Babylon are summoned. What are they summoned to do? Come to this dedication of the image which Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And in verse 3, they're all assembled together for this dedication. And again, we see this repetition. The repetition underscores the king's authority. I mean, all these positions are listed twice. And, and it really shows us the king's authority and the people's obedience to the king. And so I don't think that I'd be out of line here to suggest that not only is this an attempt, get this now, at a conformity of worship, but this is a test of allegiance to the king. Are you with me? He's the one setting up the image. He's calling these people together. The next time we will see this is part of the accusation that the Chaldeans uh, bring against Hananiah, Azariah, Mishael. They, they mention all this again, and, and we'll have to wait till uh, another night. But look for just a moment at verse 12. Look at what it says. 
There are certain Jews whom thou hast set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not regarded thee. You see that? They serve not thy gods, nor worship the golden image which thou hast set up. And so we'll say more about this next time, but it looks to me as though the king, he's not only trying to conform one, one form of worship here, but he's also testing to see, are they going to regard me as the authority in the land? Flush out those who need to be flushed out. And, and so there were those in positions of leadership who did not like the king elevating these Hebrews. They're captives. And they've been elevated... And so they're going to take advantage of this event to bring in an indictment against them, just like we're going to see they do against Daniel in chapter 6. Now, whether the king is seeking to prevent the influence of Jewish leadership from propagating in his kingdom or not, it's not stated. But this account, it is going to test the allegiance of the whole empire, all these leaders. It's going to test the allegiance that they have for the king. And the test... And, and test who all will follow with worshiping this image. Now, I want you to see this command in verses 4 and 5. Then in herald cried aloud to you, it is commanded, O people, nations, and languages, that at what time ye heard the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, ye fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar hath set up. The command to fall down and worship the image is to who? It's to everybody, to all. You're to fall down and do this. Regardless of where you're from in the, in the empire, what province you're from, regardless of what language you speak, and ultimately, regardless of what religion you bring to the table. When I tell you, and you hear that music, you bow down and you worship. And, and I just want to pause right here and just say, I know there's a lot that we see wrong in our government, but can we just stop and praise God that we live in a country with the governmental structure that we have? Can you imagine if we had this kind of situation that we live under? This would be, this would be terrible. And, and so we see in verse 5 that the time to fall down in worship is at the sound of music being played. If you're unfamiliar with all of these instruments, you're not alone. I had to look up the sack butt. The internet told me at first it was an early form of a trombone, but then I discovered that was in reference to something being developed during the Renaissance. So I looked up various sources on the Bible, and there's a mix of opinion between whether it was a stringed instrument or a wind instrument. What we do know is that these instruments are both wind instruments and stringed instruments, but then there's the catch-all, all kinds of music. And so I don't know, throw whatever instrument you want in there, all right? The bottom line is that the music was the call to worship. And then in verse 6, we see the consequences for any who will not obey this command to fall down and worship the image. And whoso falleth not down and worshipeth shall the same hour be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So, here we are. The image has been fashioned. It has been put in place. All have been gathered for this dedication. The commandment has gone forth. The punishment for disobedience has been made known. And in verse 7, this edict is put to the test. It says, therefore, at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the cornet, flute, harp, sackbut, psaltery, and all kinds of music, all the people, the nations, and the languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king 
had set up. Now at this point, it appears that Nebuchadnezzar's attempt at unifying everybody around one form of worship, one state religion, if you will, is having the effect that he had hoped for. As of now, it appears there's none that are disobedient to the king's commandment. Albeit, I would imagine many are obedient out of fear of that burning fiery furnace over there. How sad at this point in verse 7 that all are blindly following this command. Exodus 23.2 says, Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. But that's what's happening here. Consider how many people are guilty of the same thing today. I realize Nebuchadnezzar is the king, but he's still just one man out of an entire empire demanding this. The minority is swaying the majority. And isn't that what we're witnessing today? Consider how many companies are bowing to the pressure to cave to the transgender movement. Consider how many school districts are giving in to ungodly curriculum. Look at how many professional sports organizations are being used as political tools. Look at how so-called churches are falling victim to the same thing as well. And as we draw closer and closer to the end of days, no wonder we're seeing the pressure for churches to conform, to unify. There's a term for all of this. It's called ecumenicalism. And it's the idea that Christians, at least in name, should all work together to develop closer relationships among other churches in the community, regardless of doctrinal differences, to promote, quote, Christian unity. There's not only a move of interdenominational unity, which I get Christian junk mail in my email all the time for this kind of thing. And it's not because I'm somebody. They send it to everybody, but hey, would you like to come to this event? No. <laughs> I never answer. But I'm going to act like I do. No, I'm not going to. I'm a Baptist. Ah. And, and there's not only a move of interdenominational unity, but there's also the move for interfaith unity. What's he doing? I don't care where you're from. I don't care what language you speak. I don't care what you worshiped in the province you came from. But when you come here and you hear this music play, you're going to bow and you're going to worship all the same. We, we've all seen the coexist stickers, which apparently are trying to promote unity among different religions. But this isn't a new movement. Since 1937, there have been special prayer services for the inauguration of our presidents. And at the best I can tell, every president, or at least nearly all, I should say, since 1949 have had interfaith prayer services, including your favorite presidents. We saw interfaith on full display after 9-11, if you remember that. Various prayer services being held around the country. I can remember watching on the news the interfaith prayer service that was being held at Yankee Stadium, emceed by none other than Oprah Winfrey, who, by the way, believes we're all heading in the same direction. All roads lead to God. There were prayers and readings from different religious texts. The Koran. Our Bible, 
so many faves for Reverend. I, I went online just to refresh myself. You can watch the entire thing if you want out there. And if you really want to get sick to your stomach, also watch Bill Clinton's inauguration and watch all these different religions get up. And there's Christians that get on the same platform. Say, yeah, I'll join you. I'll pray after the Muslim. I'll pray after the Baha'i guy. I'll pray after the rabbi. Do they have faith in Christ? What are they doing in a church? Because that's where the inauguration took place. You see the problem? All this interfaith junk. That's what's happening here. This idea that we're all worshiping the same God. But listen to me, friends. We don't all have the same God. All paths do not lead to God. The, the one true God of the Bible never wants His children to bow down before any other God. Hey, no matter the consequences. Exodus 20, verses 4 and 5, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them, for I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. This idea of, of blending all denominations regardless of doctrine. This idea of, of taking all these religions and bringing them together, joining them as one, it is not pleasing to God. Don't fall for the lie of Satan. But you stand firm in these days in which we live. When you consider the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, it is clear that Christ is very concerned with a church's doctrinal purity. I'm sorry I'm preaching tonight. Is that okay? I forgot it was Wednesday night. Pergamos, in Revelation chapter 2 verses 14 and 15, listen to this. But I have a few things against thee, because thou hast there, thou hast there them that hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to cast a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed unto idols, and to commit fornication. So hast thou also them that hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. He said this to Thyatira in Revelation 2.20, Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth, calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And in verse 24, it's called her doctrine. But what's interesting is, when you come to the last church, the church of the Laodiceans, there's no mention of doctrine. All the other ones, you can, you can ascertain there's some amount of doctrine being spoken of. There's no mention of doctrine in Laodicea, and where's Christ? He's on the outside knocking to come in. And that's the spirit which is beginning to penetrate the American church landscape. No wonder our Lord asked in Luke 18.8, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall He find faith on the earth? These days are upon us. Don't be fooled. The pressure to conform to one primary re religious thought that we're all worshiping the same God, it's here. Are you going to be found faithful? Better yet. Will we be found faithful? With God's help, with God's word as our authority, our guide, I say Liberty Baptist Tabernacle will be that church that still has a pure faith 
that's found here on the earth because of right doctrine. Ephesians 6.13, Wherefore take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Next time, we're going to see these three Hebrew captives. They're still being guided by God's Word. They still understand Exodus chapter 20. They understand that even in a foreign pagan land, which is what we're transforming into, they still have to obey the Word of God to the best of their ability. When the world pressures them to bow the knee and worship a false god, they say no. And they are going to stand firm for their God, the one true God of heaven. May we be found faithful. Let's pray.